Amen. You guys can have a seat. Uh, good morning. Uh, and welcome again to everyone except for Kansas Jayhawk basketball fans. Uh, if I don't know you, uh, my name is Daniel Ernest. I'm the executive pastor here at GBC. Uh, it's a pleasure to get to open up God's Word and teach to you from it. Today we're going to be continuing on in 2 Corinthians. Specifically, we're going to be looking at chapter 3, the first 11 verses. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead uh, and turn there again, 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, and as you do that, I want to kind of get a running start at this. West has mentioned this uh, a couple of times the past several weeks, but, but one of the things we need to be clear on here at the start is one of the reasons that Paul writes 2 Corinthians is to defend himself, it's to defend himself. And that's because his reputation and really his message, the gospel, is under attack by false teachers who are in Corinth. And these false teachers, they're, they're known as Judaizers, Judaizers, and they were wrongly trying to uh, syncretize or, or to mix Judaism with Christianity. Okay, like just as an example, uh, they demanded or mandated circumcision for all new believers, which understandably was not that popular. Uh, and these false teachers, they were constantly trying to delegitimize Paul in the minds of the Corinthian church. They were saying things like, does this guy really know what he's talking about? Is he really an apostle? Why would God choose him? He's so simple, so unsophisticated. And also they would say, where is he? Why is Paul not here? He doesn't care about you. He's a flake. And so on the surface, and Paul has been doing this, he will continue to do this. But today, on the surface, Paul is going to start really by defending himself, but he'll use this personal defense. He's going to use it to talk about something more theologically, really more practically significant. Okay, so, so, so that's what's going on. That's what you need to know before we read the text. Let's start now. I want to read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians 3. So go ahead and look. 2 Corinthians 3. One, Paul starts, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Okay, like I said, Paul's defending himself, and in verses 1 and 2, I hope you notice this, he's a little salty, right? He basically starts out and he says, do you need me to introduce myself again? Do you need someone else to, to, to vouch for me, to, to send a letter of recommendation? Hey, he's being sarcastic. Really, he's being sardonic. He's, he's mocking them a bit. Because remember, Paul planted this church. 
Okay, he spent a year and a half in Corinth. He knows these people well. In fact, he probably led most of them to Jesus. He shared the gospel with them. He knows them. He loves them. Which is why he essentially says, you want a letter? I'll give you a letter. It's you. You're my letter of recommendation. Hey, he's basically like, the fact that in the midst of this debauched and wicked town, remember Corinth was sort of the Las Vegas of the time, Paul's like, the, the fact that you live there and you follow Jesus, that's the only testimonial I need. Hey, he's saying, my ministry's credibility, it's based on the people that have changed as a result of my ministry. And I love this. It's noteworthy enough for us to pause. Okay, when we think about church, it can be really easy to measure success, whatever that means, on the building, uh, on the budget, on the programs, on the pastor. But Paul gives us a reality check here. He's reminding us the only measure of so-called success in ministry, the standard, it's in making disciples. It's discipleship. And note, it's not that the church, the institution, makes disciples. No, at GBC, we equip you. That's what we're doing on Sundays. That's what we do in our small groups. We equip you with ministry skills and biblical knowledge. Why? Why do we study the Bible? so that you can be mobilized, so, so that you can go to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your friends, to your family, to all the places that you go, and why? To make disciples. And, and so, as individuals that are part of the church, it's worth asking, it's worth thinking about. Who are my, who are your letters of recommendation? Who are your letters of recommendation? What do they say about your ministry, your efforts in discipleship? Okay, who, who could you point to and say, this is who I am. This is what I do. Do you have any? And look, I get it. I, I know that even as I talk about this, some of you are sitting there thinking, I don't know enough too much of a mess. I'm, I'm so busy. No one would want me to disciple them. But Paul actually addresses these concerns and others in verses 4 and 5. Where does confidence in discipleship come from? Where does confidence in ministry come from? Paul says, not from me. Not from us. No, he says, we are sufficient. That could also be rendered or translated, we are able because God is able. Because God is sufficient. Okay, so, so in the end, discipleship is not contingent or dependent on you, on your ability, your capacity, your gifts. It's not contingent on anything about you. Instead, discipleship is totally and wholly dependent on God. He's the one that moves and works. He's the one who writes the letters of recommendation. And as Paul says, not with something impermanent like ink. No, God writes 
with the permanency of the Holy Spirit. He calls us to this ministry to, to make disciples, to discipleship, and he enables us in it. He doesn't leave us alone. He enables us in it through his very own spirit. Now, don't forget, this whole conversation, remember, Paul is defending himself. He's addressing concerns about his apostleship, about his ministry. And so he said, they, my, my, my accusers, they want me to prove myself? Look in the mirror. You're my proof. And then he says, they, my detractors, they want me to establish my sufficiency, my ability? He says, it's not about me. It's about God. It's about his sufficiency in me. He has made me, he has made us able. And and did you notice what Paul said he was made able to do? Look at verse 6. Paul says, And God has made us sufficient, able to be ministers of what? A new covenant. A, A new covenant. That's the other thing that's going on here. Paul is speaking of a new covenant, and really what he's doing is he is contrasting it. He's been contrasting it with the old. And the reason why, again, is because he's defending himself. He's trying to show these opponents, these Judaizers, these false teachers, they're advocating, remember, for the old ways, circumcision, feasts, festivals. Paul's saying God has provided a new way. And so Paul is drawing out this comparison, and we're going to talk about how he's doing that in the first six verses, but to get a fuller picture of what he's doing, I want to read verses 7 through 11. So look at verse 7 with me. Again, I'm reading through verse 11. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Okay. I want to talk through Paul's comparison of the new and old covenants here in 2 Corinthians. But before I can, before I can, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page, okay? We're about to talk some theology, okay? I apologize in advance for that, but I promise it's going to be worth it, okay? In the end, the implications of this contrast between old and new covenant, I promise you it is massively important for how we live as Christians, okay? So, so stick with me for the next five minutes okay, or so, Okay? Let's start with the basics. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? It's, it's this word you, you throw around, you hear a lot in church. Here's at least my best shot at it. A covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Okay, essentially, it's an arrangement or an agreement where people bind themselves to each other. Okay, an easy example is marriage, Right? A man and a woman stand in front of everyone, they make vows, solemn vows, and they bind themselves to each other for the rest of their lives. And what you need to understand is, our God, the God of the Bible, is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. 
Okay, he willingly enters into relationship with us. The creator enters into relationship with his creation. He binds himself to us even though he doesn't have to. And he does that, how? He does that through a covenant. And the old covenant, the means by which God related to his people was through the law. Okay, through the Ten Commandments which, by the way, were written on tablets of stone by Moses. Paul referenced that, if you caught it, in verses 3 and 7. And if you notice, Paul provides us with some further commentary. I'm going to skip around a bit. You're going to have to have your head on a swivel, but but look with me at these verses. He says, while the old covenant was glorious, this is in verse 7, he says, it's exceeded in glory, it's surpassed, verse 10, by the new covenant specifically, This is from verse 6, because the old covenant is defined by the letter of the law, which Paul says is only able to kill. It's only able to kill. And also, this is from verse 9, because the old covenant's ministry, its result, its purpose, its end, was what? Condemnation. Judgment. This is a little extra, but I think it's worth it. The ministry of the old covenant, it leading to death, to condemnation, to judgment, it's maybe best illustrated in its own beginning. Okay, in its own beginning. Here's what I mean. The inauguration of the old covenant was at Mount Sinai. Okay, the Israelites had just been delivered from Egypt. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God. And before Moses even gets down the mountain, okay, this is Exodus 32, the people are already breaking all of the laws. Like, they are already breaking all the laws. They're worshiping a golden calf. And as a result, God had 3,000 people, 3,000 Israelites killed, punished. Okay, so the old covenant, even from the very beginning, before Moses even made it down the mountain, it was marked by death, condemnation, judgment. All the law is able to do is to reveal our sin. Now, the new covenant, Paul says, this is verse 3, it's written by the Spirit on the human heart. And by the way, this was prophesied in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. God says he'll write the law on his people's hearts. Ezekiel 36, he says that he will give them a heart of flesh in place of their heart of stone. And instead of the new covenant killing, instead of it bringing death, the new covenant, again, through the Spirit, it brings what? Life. That's verse 6. The new covenant has a ministry. Again, think it has a purpose or an end of what? Of righteousness. That was verse 9. And these effects, life and righteousness, they're permanent. That's verse 11. Paul says the effects of the new covenant never end. And again, these aspects of the new covenant are seen in the very beginning. They're seen in its inauguration. In Acts 2, the people are celebrating Pentecost, which was a celebration of the giving of the law. And who comes down? It's not Moses. It's the Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? He awakens in the hearts of the people. And this is so cool. 
He, he awakens in the hearts of the people an understanding of the gospel. And how many people do you think respond to the gospel that day? Not 3,001, not 2,999, 3,000 people. Okay, this is not a coincidence. Absolutely not. What God is doing is he is painting this stark contrast between the old and the new, and Paul is picking up on it here. And again, remember, in the back of your mind, even though Paul doesn't name them, even though they're not mentioned, he's contrasting, Paul is contrasting his ministry with his opponents. Okay, he, he, he's saying they're contending for the old ways, for death and for condemnation. But my ministry, my ministry is of the new covenant. It's of a far greater one. It reveals God's glory in an exceptional, in a superlative way. And the point here, the point is not just that Paul's trying to win, hold himself above his opponents. No, his intent is pastoral, it's personal. He's drawing out this comparison, this contract, because he's implicitly, we're going to get more of this next week in verses 12 through 18, He's implicitly calling the Corinthians, he's calling you and me to live in the freedom of the new covenant. Okay, and this is where this gets practical for you and me. Okay, if I, if I left you behind in the last five minutes with Mount Sinai and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, come back. Okay, come back. This is huge because I'm convinced that so many Christians, many of us in this room even, people in your small groups, they're trying to live new covenant Christianity based on old covenant principles. They're trying to live new covenant Christianity with old covenant principles. Here's what I mean. Based on 2 Corinthians 3, what are the foundational principles of the old covenant? We've talked about this. Well, first, it's external. Right? It relies on external regulation, the law, rules. Second, it revolves around our performance for God, what we can do, what we contribute. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like so many Christians today? So many churches today? So many people start by asking the question, and it might not be the exact words, but it's this basic idea. We ask, how can I please God? I, I want to please God. How can I do it? Or, or I want to be a good Christian. What do I need to do? And unfortunately, a lot of people fall into the trap of the Old Covenant. And what they start doing is compiling a list in their mind of these external regulations. Okay, some of them are things that God actually cares about, and some of them are things that he doesn't care about. It's things like praying and reading the Bible, not cussing, not drinking, not gossiping, going to church, being a part of a small group, giving money away. Serving or volunteering. It's this list of things. So, so they try their best to adhere to this list of do's and don'ts. And then they measure their relationship. We measure our relationship with God based on how we're doing with the list. And you see the problem with that, right? The problem is, if we're honest, you and me, we fail more times than we'd like to admit. Okay, maybe we're able to to do good for a while, like in January when there's New Year's resolutions, 
But eventually, we fail. We, we don't keep the standard that we've set ourselves to, and we feel guilty. Guilty. And eventually, we sort of dust ourselves off, tell God we'll do better, recommit to the list, recommit to the things that we feel like will please God, and we do this time and 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 time again. You wonder why Christians are worn out and exhausted. This process, it is exhausting. And at its best, the result is that we live in a, let's call it mediocre, unimpressive Christian existence. Just kind of going through the motions. Apathetic, tired. And at worst, at worst, and, and this is so scary as a pastor, this cycle just drives people further and further and further into condemnation. You, you, you try and you try and you try, but the more you try, the deeper you fall into God's judgment. And the horrifying thing is, most people don't even realize that they're here. They're doing all the good things. They're doing the things that they think they're supposed to do. And they don't realize they're stuck in condemnation. They're stuck in the old covenant. Like, this is a big deal. We have to get this right. Amen. So what's the alternative? How can we live according to the new covenant? Okay, well, where the old covenant relied on external regulation, okay, the new covenant, it relies on internal transformation. Isn't that what Paul said? Isn't that what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about? Okay, the difference between the old and the new covenant, by the way, it's not the law. The law is still here. The difference between the old and the new covenant is this. Do you have a new heart? Have you been transformed by the Spirit? The difference is the Spirit's activity in the life of a Christian. And a new heart being transformed on the inside, in the end, that's all that matters. And it leads to the next thing. Okay, where the old covenant revolved around our performance, what we could do. The new covenant revolves around God's performance in us. Ultimately, and this is so important, Christianity is not about your work for God. Okay, Christianity is not about your work for God. It's about God's work for you. Okay, and if the starting point of all of this is wondering what we can do to please God, what we can do to be accepted by God, the answer is absolutely nothing. The answer is absolutely nothing. There's nothing you can do. And that ultimately is the great insult of Christianity. It's what separates us from every other world religion that works and works and works. That's how you gain approval. The Bible tells us we are so evil, so depraved, so rotten to our core that there is absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves, to make ourselves good. But even more, even more, it tells us that God himself had to intervene for us. That he had to do what we couldn't do. And like, man, once you get over the inerrant insult that's there, I hope you see how astonishing, breathtaking, 
amazing the gospel is. And ultimately, the result of the new covenant, the result was what? It's life. It's righteousness. It's freedom. And you ask, freedom to do what? And the answer is, it's freedom to do whatever you want. It's freedom to do whatever you want. And you might balk at that. Like that might seem off at first. But remember, you've been given a new heart. God has worked an internal transformation. He's he's changed you from the inside. So now you want what he wants. You're finally free to do what's most pleasing to him, to be obedient. You're finally free to be what he created you to be. Because remember, again, it's not that the law goes away in the new covenant. It's not that we don't have this obligation to be obedient. No, instead, the law is written on our hearts. And so we obey not to earn anything, not to gain anything. You already have everything you need. No, you do it simply as a response, as an opportunity to express love and devotion to a God that saved you. Okay, so things like praying and reading and worshiping and serving, these things that used to be a a box to check, a, a way to sort of stave off guilt, a way to make you feel like you're contributing. Instead of these things feeling like an obligation, they become your delight. They become your joy. They become what you want to do. Once you're changed on the inside, what you do on the outside has a foundation, not just in our love for God, but more profoundly and more securely in God's love for us. Okay, and just as a picture of of this, I want you to think about it like this, okay? If I want to do something nice uh, for my wife, Kelsey, let's say uh, buy her flowers or something, okay? Do you see how different it is for me depending on my motivation? Okay, if I'm trying to earn her affection or if I'm trying to make up for some wrong I've done to her or maybe I'm just doing it because it's Valentine's Day and for some reason that's what we do. If I go buy flowers, what does it feel like? It feels like a chore. It feels like a compulsion. Like I'm, I'm doing it. It's the right thing. But I'm only doing it because I feel like I have to. It's a box to check. You know, if I'm doing it, though, differently, with a different motivation, if I'm doing it simply to express, to communicate affection, to, to demonstrate how much I love her, don't you see how the same thing, buying flowers, going to H-E-B or, or Trader Joe's or wherever you go to buy flowers, don't you see how the motivation changes everything? This same thing no longer feels like a chore, but it's something that I actually want to do. It's something I'm excited to do. It's the same thing with our obedience, with following God. And sure, I get it. It's not always easy. I'm not trying to say that. I'm not trying to say that there aren't times, seasons, where you have to gut it out where you know you've got to obey because you should. I'm not saying there aren't times like that, that it's always easy. But what I am saying, and I want you to hear this, on the whole, if that is your only experience, 
if you are always driven by duty and never delight. Again, I want you to hear this. That's probably a problem. You might not be a Christian. I mean that. If you are always driven by duty and never delight, you might not have ever received the Spirit. You might not have been changed on the inside. Okay, so if you feel like you're, you're stuck in this cycle of striving that I described earlier, if you're living with old covenant principles, if you're exhausted or apathetic, you need to hear this. The answer is not more discipline. The answer is not more rules. The answer is not chasing some camp high for more motivation. The answer is in living in the new covenant. It's in a new heart. The, the answer is in being transformed inwardly by the Spirit. The answer is in finding and realizing a new motivation. Listen, if you're there, beg God to change you. And I'm talking to Christians here, not non-Christians. Beg God to transform you through his Spirit, to, to, to make you rest in his performance to you, to, to, to make you secure in who he has made you to be. And if you do that, if your desire in doing that is sincere, I promise he will do that for you. He will give it to you. He will transform your heart through the Son and by the Spirit. And incidentally, providentially even, we have the opportunity now to reflect on all of these things in taking communion. You see, what we're celebrating in taking the elements is God's provision of Jesus' body and blood. What we're celebrating is the guarantee of God's acceptance of us. Listen, none of this matters. All of it hinges on Jesus' work on the cross. Okay, he was perfect where we were sinful. He, he was righteous when we were condemned. The law had no claim over him, and yet he willingly gives his body, he sheds his blood he does what we are totally incapable of doing. He makes us right with God to the glory of his Father. Okay, so as the musicians come forward, we want you to take time now to repent of sin in your life. We don't want you to take the elements in an unworthy manner. Specifically, I want you to repent. If this is something you struggle with, I want you to repent of your striving, of your attempts to accomplish, to earn what's already been freely given to you. And then, if you're a Christian, I want you to come when the music starts to play row by row, starting in the front, going to the back, upstairs, starting with the outside sections and moving towards the middle uh, to the back there. Go and, and take the elements and bring them back to your seats so that we can celebrate together. Take time now to pray.